You see, the truth is that when it comes down to class and color, everything that we've been discussing about these gaps that exist because of socioeconomic class have been affecting people of color. The truth of this Black Lives Matter moment is that all of these disparities are communicating to black and brown communities and, and black communities in particular that they don't matter enough to be given the resources to bridge those things that have been caused by a history of violence and discrimination and systemic racism. When the man said You are choking me And he cried out I cannot breathe Did your heart break? Does your heart break now? Welcome to Our Faith Journey, a podcast that focuses on how to find joy and purpose in an abundant relationship with Christ. My name is Gerald Chang, and I've noticed that most Christians today struggle to develop a personal connection with God. Uh, this podcast will share practical ways on how to foster a relationship with God so that you can experience lasting joy. And you know, this series is focused on a very uh, important element relating to our relationship with God because uh, our relationship with God is also closely tied into our relationship with others, especially in the conversation of race and religion, which has been quite a hot topic over the past few weeks. Uh, this series has been focusing on how we as Christians can follow the words of Micah 6, 8, to do justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with God. And so I'm back on the show with Dr. Bowtie Bryant and Sean. Welcome back again. Thank you, sir. Good morning and happy Father's Day. It is Father's Day when we are recording this. So for you guys that are listening, I hope you celebrated Father's Day by this time because it's Thursday when this comes out. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, today uh, is going to be a pretty complex conversation. And I'm going to start off by saying that I don't know a lot about this. Um, so I am going to be more of the learner in this situation. And, um, you know, uh, both Brian and Sean are going to be my teachers today. So, <laughs> um, today we're talking about class and color and, you know, just talking about the relationship between these two and, and recognizing that, you know, the disparities of the African-American community are, are more than just like we talked about the police and the prison system. And we're going to delve into some other areas, um, in uh in life so uh i'll just let bowtie brian take it away uh what, what well, are we going to talk about today wonderful <laughs> hello everybody bowtie brian here welcome back to our faith podcast our faith journey podcast uh, i'm not a great host thank you gerald it, it, it's it's great because i think that you know we're all kind of learning about these things sean and i having a clinic in a impoverished area become so familiar with all of the different complexities. And I think that what becomes meaningful for us as Christians is the fact that we're following a God who has bridged the gap 
you know, that, that is always the call, even from the, the Old Testament, you know, whom shall I send, who will go for us? You know, the Lord's eyes are looking to and fro and who uh, can be able to, to intercede. But in order to be able to bridge these gaps as Christians, we have to get to know a little bit more about what those gaps actually are. So last week we talked about this idea of defunding the police and, you know, money seems to be what you can follow um, consistently to be able to kind of figure out where problems lie. And so we ran across this interesting infographic, you can say by Ben and Jerry's that they posted on their Instagram, kind of articulating what exactly it means to defund the police. Those of you who are listening, which is only, uh, the audience of this podcast since there's no video. Uh, Gerald, it'd be good for people to see our faces. I, I took a shower this morning for, for <laughs> no, I, I did not. So <laughs> sorry, Brian. <laughs> Check out Ben and Jerry's Instagram. You can see this really cool uh, picture of what it exactly is being articulated, I think, from the probably the most true comment on defunding the police. Sean, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Because I think it's going to launch us off into the discussion pretty well. Yeah, so you know the obviously Ben and Jerry's is ice cream, right? They they make ice cream, and so they created a really a really cool picture of this idea that there's a bunch of different ice creams in a bowl, right? Different flavors. Looks like we have chocolate, vanilla. We have some swirl. We have some strawberry, and so the idea is that um, this big bowl is the United States police budget, right? 115 billion dollars. And so, obviously, the uh, the ice cream scooper that is taking small scoops out of that bowl and putting them into other bowls is, you know, labeled as defunding the police, right? And these other smaller bowls that you know we all get a chance to to eat from the larger bowl are, you know, labeled with affordable housing, job training, education, mental health counseling, and substance abuse treatment. And so, as we talked about last week. This idea of defunding the police, there's many different perspectives on it. How much do we defund them? Where do we actually place the, the, the funding that would otherwise be going to the police? And I think what this infographic does is share with people what defunding the police means in a way that could actually be, be meaningful and helpful to say that, hey, we're going to take the money that may be going into the, the, the police system and being able to, as we talked about last week, rehabilitate society, right? So mm. much of what we're doing with the prison system, with the policing system is making it really difficult for people to um, re-engage the, the society once they interface with the, with the police system. And so what if we actually did prevention, right? And put some of that funding into these other social services. So again, you know, affordable housing, job training, education, mental health counseling, and substance abuse treatment. Things that are really important that, as we're going to talk about throughout the rest of the podcast today, are determinants of your likelihood of actually encountering the police and encountering the prison system. So these items become really important, and we want to dive into each one of these today to give a little bit of a clear picture about how disparities exist across these areas for people of, um, uh, you know, of another race. Um, and so, uh, so when we're, we're taking a look at these things, Sean, you know, you and I have 
the formal training at the doctorate level, and we have some of the experience in the field. Gerald, you were just mentioning that this morning will also include you doing some stuff for medical school. And so you're on that side of your formal training. And there's this big conversation on social determinants of health. What do you know about that? Um, I am not super familiar, but I, at, at least from my understanding, you know, coming from a, like a, a middle-class Asian American family, I think what I was, was told is that, you know, as long as you work hard, um, you can accomplish like the American dream, right? That's the, that's the, the narrative of America. But, um, the more I've learned in college, uh, there's just other factors that I don't think about. Like, for example, the type of occupation or have, the type of health services you have access to, the type of education that you have access to. Um, even the culture you grow up in, um, uh, there's just so many things that I don't take into factor. And so for me, I think those combined sets of things, you know, probably made it easier for me to achieve the path of medicine per se. Um, not to say that I didn't work for it, but to say that the path was easier for me to go along. And I recognize I need to be more aware of these different factors because to simplify this whole discussion as in, okay, you know, to get out of poverty, you just need to work hard, I feel is too reductionistic of a picture. So mm -hmm. yes, that's mm -hmm. what I would say on that. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a good commentary because I think that what we all get to learn in our formal education is things are a lot more complex than they seem, right? Uh, especially yeah. within the context of social determinants of health and basically quality of life, which is basically just simply saying, you know, when people come to us as healthcare professionals, there's only so much we can do. What's the statistic again, Sean, besides healthcare, um, what do these social determinants of health actually contribute to the quality of life? Yeah, so when it comes to overall health, you know, only 20% of the, our actual healthcare um, that, that we have, right, that, that, that actually influences our overall health is by the healthcare professionals that are providing health for us. So that's talking about doctor visits, dental visits, right, even hospitalizations and all the time that people interface with the, the health systems. Only 20% of all that care um, is actually contributing to someone's overall health. And 80% is determined by what we call social determinants of health. These factors outside of the direct interface with the healthcare system that really um, influence health disparities and ultimately overall health. Mm -hmm. So basically, if, you, if your life was a, was a pie, right, 20% uh, of that pie, which is the good, let's say, let's call this pie the good life. You want the good life, uh, only 20% of that pie will give you the good life based on healthcare, right? 80% of the good life is based on these things that we're going to be talking about today. And so healthcare is our immediate context. And so we're going to start with that as our entry point. So what exactly is the relationship between this good life pie and healthcare, Sean? Well, there's you know, as we're, as we're asserting, um, and as lots of research has done, uh, been done in the recent years, that there are health disparities between the races, right? Um, What's a health disparity, Sean? Well, health disparities, if we, you know, dive a little bit deeper into it, health disparities are really 
you know, there are differences in health that are closely linked to social or economic dis- disadvantage. So health disparities negatively affect groups of people who have systematically experienced greater social or economic obstacles to health. So for mm-hmm. example, if um, we look at statistics like hypertension or heart disease or heart failure, these chronic conditions right, have disproportionately affected the African-American community um, more so than any other um, you know, ethnicity or race in the United States. And so that is what we would simply call a health disparity. Okay. Now, how we get to that health disparity is, is very interesting. So um, there is a connection between this disparity that exists and socioeconomic status or class, right? And so, you know, simply put, economic status or class is, is just, you know, the, the, the neighborhoods you live in, the city that you live in, how much money you make, the schools that you're able to put your kids in, right? It's a measure of all these different things that make up socioeconomic status or class. And so this connection between class and, and uh, health disparities really is linked by an amalgam of many different factors called social determinants of health. And so if you imagine, you know, not everybody who has health disparities, right? Um, maybe someone has, maybe a group of people does have a higher risk of diabetes or, or hypertension, but sometimes it's not always linked to, to socioeconomic status or class. But if it is, there's many times what we call the social determinants of health that really come into play. So social determinants of health include your education, your occupation, your income, and your residence. And this is somewhat of a cycle because if you think about you know, where somebody lives, right? If you want to start, someone is born today. One thing they don't get to choose is where they live, okay? So where someone lives ultimately affects where someone is able to go to school, right? Many people, if you live in a certain zip code or a certain school district, you are uh, required to go to that school. And as we know, schools are very different uh, based on their level of performance according to taxes, right? So the higher, the, 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 the more wealthy the area, the more uh, you know, taxes can be uh, gained from property taxes, which means that the schools get better and hire better teachers because they have more income to spend on these type of programs. And so if your education isn't as good, well, that's usually going to affect your occupation, right? Um, people who are living in poverty are less likely to go to college, right? That is a fact. And we have to contend with that because ultimately, um, occupation, right, and the type of job you get determines how much money you make. And then the circle goes round and round because how much money you make determines where you can live. It determines how uh, your, your, you know, um, your household income determines all the different, um, you know, funding opportunities that you have to be able to buy a home in a nice area. So this cycle kind of continues, uh, especially generationally, um, in in many communities, and so. Uh, that's a little bit uh, kind of a brief overview of how social determinants of health really are the link between socioeconomic status and health disparities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the socioeconomic cycle is definitely something that um, is complicated, right? You know, we're, we're trying to put together our little pie for the good life. It, it becomes important because the ingredients we have to make the pie 
really depend on these elements, right? Where we live, uh, how we're educated, the jobs we have, and ultimately the money we make. Um, but, you know, in, in many ways, that's not to say that you can't have the good life at any level of socioeconomic status. But what we're looking at are some of the issues that find their way into somebody's quality of life, into their pie, so to speak. Um, especially now we're going to just go into the issue of education, right? So we talked about where somebody lives and zip code, which then affects education. So one, one of the big issues, of course, is this thing called the school-to-prison pipeline. Uh, Gerald, did you mention that you had heard about this, you know about this? Um, did you, when did you encounter that? Was that just in our conversation here, or you had been reading about it previously? No, I, I think it was just in our conversation. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty unfamiliar with this term and what, what it means. Well, let me ask you, um, where did you go to school? What, what's your story? You grew up a uh, Cali boy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I don't think I really understood the public school system, right? Because I went to private school. I went to Adventist education, Christian education. So uh, these type of things like, am I going to pay for this or that was never a question in my mind. And so I think that's where it's hard for me to relate uh, with someone who, let's say, you know, the argument is, oh, we still have public education. Everyone has public education, but is the public education equal across the board? And like we're saying, no, it's not. And why is that the case? That's where things become complicated. And I don't think my educational journey really addressed that. I think I was in a nice bubble uh, and recent events and college has slowly started forcing me to get outside of that bubble. My experience is not the experience of, of all Americans or if not most Americans. Um, so yeah. And let me, let me also say, <clears throat> speaking as a black man, it also is not my story as well. I grew up in a middle-class family and, and, uh, it was a public schools, but it was one of the best public schools actually in the, the area. And I definitely had opportunities to have access to some of the best uh, resources and organizations and um, opportunities also in my, my uh, educational experience. And so it's interesting because now, Sean, maybe you kind of round it out. What was your time? Yeah, so my educational uh, journey, um, you know, very similar to you guys. Um, I think one of the interesting differences is that the school district that I um, lived in had two different high schools, right? I know that in California, there's, you know, LA Unified and Pomona Unified, and all these schools, districts that have, you know, hundreds sometimes of high schools in, in, their, in these school districts. But our, our school district just had two high schools. And for me, I went to the predominantly white school, and there was a predominantly black and Hispanic uh, high school. And so for me, at a pretty young age, I got to see, because these were our rivals in sports, right? Like we played you know, basketball, football against these guys. And, you know, I, I, I grew up playing against them. So I developed friends that went to the rival high school by getting an opportunity to, to play against them over, over the years. And I realized pretty quickly that um, the experiences weren't always the same. Um, there's this story that, um, while it's not directly related to education, is related to sports. Um, but I think it could provide a pretty good example of what we're trying to share. Is you know our our high school um, was able to fund 
a, a weight room just for the football team, right? Well, what happened over, over a couple of years is that the other high school said, well, we don't have that. Well, a lot of people in our high school said, well, we built this with our own funding, right? And, used, and kind of used that to say, well, hey, we shouldn't use taxpayer money to pay for a weight room at your school. You should do the fundraising. Well, um, this community wasn't as, uh, as, as affluent, right? And it was, it's not just, as we're mentioning, just based on race um, or ethnicity, but um, objectively, you know, the, the, the school district was a little closer to the city. Um, so it, it wasn't an area that had, had as much money, right? The kids who went to the high school, their parents weren't as well off. And so they were unable to raise the funds. And so the school district ended up actually paying for the weight room. And of course, this became a big issue because it's, it's the same thing. One group is saying, the affluent group is saying, hey, pull up your bootstraps and figure it out just like we did without taking into consideration these realities of disparities, right? And obviously, you know, this happens not just in sports, but all across the board when you look at school districts where one school has, it has a lot of affluent people in it um, that have a lot of money and another uh, school in that same school district doesn't. Where do you think the resources are going to go? They're going to go to the more affluent community that pays the higher property taxes. But again, because of that reality, the um, equality of education is, is it's, it's, um, it's, it's a fallacy. Can I chime yeah. in real fast? Um, I remember one documentary that I think opened my eyes to this that maybe I'll put in the show notes, a documentary called Waiting for Superman, released in 2010. And it followed the journey focused on, on five students in the American public system. And I was shocked because uh, like things like school lottery, like people want to go into this good school and they all sign up for this lottery only like like 10% of the people who sign up get in, you know, and they're like waiting for a lottery ticket to determine their future yep. and talking about schools that kind of like bottom out, like 50% of graduates don't graduate. It's like known statistically that when they go into the school, like most likely they won't graduate at a higher increase of like, we talked about the school to prison pipeline. Um, and so I think my knowledge extended there, but I, I realized after I watched that, wow, like, there's so much I didn't realize that people face on a daily basis. Just trying to get a good education is not mm -hmm. as easy as studying hard and doing well in, in school. Yeah, and, and, and I think that what we can appreciate and I hope that it's you know, where we kind of land with our, with our conversation today is that when you're in a bad situation, all you see are bad options and so you make bad choices. Yeah. And so that leads into this school to prison pipeline conversation, which if you get some time, and I know Gerald will put this in the show notes, you can appreciate that there's this disproportionate tendency of minors or young adults who come from disadvantaged backgrounds to become incarcerated, right? And so there's this increasing you know, harshness in schools and the environment's not great. And you find that you know, the policing in these schools increase. So of course, if there's more police, there are more incidences of police reports and police uh, arresting uh, young people. And, you know, even at, at the school level, you see statistics like um, black students are three to four times more likely than their white peers to be expelled or to face suspensions. And 
I think you know a lot of the frustration that people are having, and we didn't get a chance to review our our Q and A at the beginning of the podcast. But one of the big questions people are asking in this moment is, you know, show me the laws that are saying that you know this is a racist thing. You know, why is this the case? I mean, it's a question I'm sure people are asking. Systemic racism, systemic racism. You know, the police are racist. The education system is racist. It's racist. You know, it's a, it's such a hot button term. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I mean, what are you guys thinking? I'm, I mean, I'm saying some things. What are you thinking? Well, if we look at, you know, post-1960, it wasn't um, culturally okay to make overt racist policies, right? The civil rights movement made that, um, what is it called? Like something that is not culturally okay, right? So so when we look at, like, let's say we we touch back to the drug war, right? Um, evidence shows that that was used as a means uh, in terms of uh, inflicting black Americans, but it wasn't overtly stated. And so that's where the conversation becomes more complicated, like we're, we're describing, because uh, for us to understand these disparities, we have to really understand the sources and understand that while there might not be overtly racist language, uh, there might still be racial reasons as to why these disparities exist. Mm -hmm. which, which leads us very nicely into the issue of gentrification. Gerald, tell, tell us about that. <sighs> well, um, again, I'm not too familiar for this term, but um, you know, uh, what I do understand is that uh, just an area that is, is, is poor or a lower class neighborhood uh, is where you renovate and improve the area. So it just uh, um, accommodates more to the middle class. Um, and I think what my understanding is, is that when you uh, increase the cost, it kind of displaces those who are poor. Um, like for example, at least from what I can remember in like NorCal close to um, big tech, right? I forgot, a Silicon Valley, right? The, the, le the level of poverty there is astonishingly so high, like $150,000 and you're considered lower class. Um, and so um, it, it's high. And so that it really uh, forces out those who are poor and, and uh, causes uh, displacement on these people not sure where to go now so yeah no it's, it's good i just wanted to kind of hear how it's been ruminating in your mind because you bring up the fact that there is a history whereby you know redlining subprime loans individuals who are already in a bad situation are given bad options right and these bad choices which is all that are being presented to them find them in even a worse situation sean i see you nodding your head no, yeah, it's just, I, I had a really intimate experience um, with getting to know this idea of gentrification uh, when I was um, uh, spending my, my residency year in, in Richmond, Virginia, uh, at, at Virginia Commonwealth University. And, you know, it, it was really interesting because VCU, um, it sits in the center of Richmond. And of course, over the years, universities get, they expand, right? They expand their programs, they build new buildings, right? To be competitive with other universities in the area. Um, so what happened is that the university, um, it expanded so much that all of the housing that was, you know, originally in the city 
um, became too expensive for the community of people who, who, who live there to afford it. Hmm. And so all of that housing ended up becoming student housing because landlords can now raise the price because they can say, Hey, this is in close proximity to the, um, the university, the property value goes up, right? They get their house appraised and then they make renovations, right? And then those renovations are way too expensive hmm. for the people that used to live there to be able to afford it. And so, it, it, I mean, not just renovations. I mean, there's whole community blocks that get destroyed in gentrification. Now, gentrification, again, is, is a great way to restore parts of the city, right? And attract tourists, attract people that, that, that have money. Because again, as, as Brian mentioned, it's a money game, right? It's all about taxes. It's even, everything we're talking about with the police and why it's so difficult to consider redirecting funding to the police. It's, it's all that these things cities are struggling with. Cities are, city councils are taking heat by their constituents and their residents to say, hey, we need to generate some income. How can we do that? And so, again, whole city blocks get um, destroyed because then someone will buy up all these properties from someone. They'll destroy a whole block and then they'll build a huge apartment complex and then they'll charge way more um, per apartment than someone could charge otherwise. And so in Richmond, Virginia specifically, when this happened uh, back in the 70s and 80s, it displaced a whole community of people to an area that had no fresh fruit and vegetables, no access to bus lines. Um, all there was was fast food, right? And so we see these food swamps and these food deserts developing, which again, the question becomes, well, health health disparities become a problem, right? How can someone get a job if they don't have access to uh, transportation to get there? If there's no bus lines? Now, these things have developed over time. But of course, the years that it takes to approve a bus line, to build the bus line, and to get all that going, just that one aspect, if you could imagine, takes years, which sets a whole community behind. Because not only did they have to move, and relocate, but they had to, many of them, uh, you know, go jobless for, for a time while this transition occurs. And so um, it is one way that uh, a community of people could be trying to, you know, climb out of the ditch while other people are climbing the ladder. And uh. that this all contributes to the disparities that exist. And I think we really need to be sensitive to that. It's, 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 it's not fair to say, hey, this is something that happened 30 years ago. But every tick along the timeline makes huge waves, you know? Every drop in the bucket make, makes huge waves. And we need to be sensitive of those realities that are, um, you know, have affected our communities. And, and because of, of what happened in the past, you know, it can currently affect the community today. Correct. <clears throat> Especially as Christians, right? Because as, as was referenced in the last episode, Christ comes along and and then John 10, 10 says that he's come that we may have life and have life more abundantly. <clears throat> and so the idea that we as Christians are, as his body, seeking to improve the quality of life for individuals now as we prepare for the, uh, the future, right? The future reality of heaven and, and the elimination of these issues of, of poverty, of, of pain, of pestilence. Um, and, and, and what's interesting, you know, just kind of looking at even the father 
Day reference, right, is that we have this good father and it's this big trope throughout the Old Testament, right? You know, the father of the fatherless and the idea of widows and, and orphans. And one of the things that we've really been appreciating as we've been talking together is the, the realities of the statistics that come along with fatherlessness. And the three of us have very strong fathers. I, I think I know everybody's father here, Gerald. I don't know if you know Sean's dad, but um, we all are young men who were raised by great men. And the beauty of that is we have been buffered against many of our probably very bad decisions. I know some of Sean's bad decisions, Gerald. I don't know a lot of your bad decisions, but I want to believe that, <laughs> I believe that Pops has been, uh, has been a part of setting you straight. And, you know, one of the big issues with this uh, prison industrial complex is that it removes men from mm-hmm. the community. There yes. are many communities where today fathers are not with their children and not by choice, right? And so let's take a look at some of the statistics. And, and these were definitely overwhelming as yeah. you know, we, we first came into a knowledge of these things. Um, let me share a few and then Sean, I'll kick it to you. Just on this issue of prison, 85% of youth who are currently in prison grew up without fathers. Maybe those statistics can change a little bit from place to place, but this comes from the Texas Department of Corrections. 85% of the young people in that space did not have a father. In, in that moment, maybe when they're making a bad decision, they couldn't hear their dad's voice saying, if you do this, I'll kill you, which I hear in my head all the time. Uh, you know, <laughs> if you do this, I'll call the police myself. You know, and, uh, and, and, and alongside those voices, they didn't have someone saying, you're better than this. I love you. I care about you. You have a future. You're worth it. I'm proud of you. I want you to succeed. Right. Yeah. And, and so, and, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, and furthermore, you know, along that point, I think it's a great point that, you know, all young, all young men, young women, we're looking for acceptance in our younger years. And so without a father, the places we are likely to find acceptance probably aren't good. Hmm. Right. Um, it makes it that much easier to, you know, um, be influenced Uh, as Brian is saying, the options are limited and none of the options are good. So if none of the options are good, then you're going to make a bad choice no matter what you do. And so it's almost like we really need to be cognizant of how, um, I mean, it's one thing to say, Hey, this is right. Fatherlessness, poverty, gentrification, um, this differences in education and healthcare. How the heck can I make a difference here? And and I think the, you know, our our take home message is not that hey you're going to be able to change the world, but we got to understand the world if we're going to be able to humanize this problem. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because when you continue down the road of of these statistics, right? And, and again, it's not to say that people who don't have fathers are not successful. Um, it's just, yeah. if you can imagine communities where there, there are no fathers, period. Um, you know, if maybe my dad was absent, I could lean on Sean's dad. And if not, then we can relax, you know, rely on Dr. Chang or, or that being a, an opportunity to support our development, because you look at these statistics to continue on, it says 63% of 
of youth suicides are from fatherless homes, which is five times the average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children, 90%, 90% of kids who are homeless on the street do not have fathers. 85% of all children who are having behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. That's 20 times the average. 80% of rapists who have anger problems, 80% of rapists, like there's no way to ignore that that relationship exists. 80% of rapists who have anger problems come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. Children who don't have fathers are 40% less likely, um, or sorry, let me say this the other way. Children with fathers are, are 40% less likely to repeat a class if you have a dad, you're 70% less likely to drop out of school. If you have a dad, you're more likely to get A's in school. If you have a dad, you're more likely to enjoy school and to en enjoy extracurricular activities, which are all part of what have made us uh, better citizens. Um, and, and the realities of, of these issues, even going before the prison system, is that you come to find that, you know, 70% of the youths who end up finding themselves into drug-related institutionalization come from fatherless homes. Um, and, and, and it becomes so important for us to appreciate the opportunity we have as a people who have been adopted as sons and daughters of the God of heaven. That that being the lens by which, you know, the creator of the universe has chosen to engage us is because it's so important for us to have a heavenly father who loves us and this was intimately involved in our story because it's nearly impossible otherwise. Now, when we look at this American story and we talk about the American dream, right? We're talking about class and color. We're appreciating that the complexities of these relationships between class and color, race and religion are there. But the, the goal in many of our minds, and, and Gerald alluded to it earlier, is that we're all pursuing this American dream, right? And, and what we're trying to maybe appreciate here even more is that we cannot oversimplify the problem that poverty presents. Yeah, I actually want to chime back into the father, fatherlessness discussion because I remember uh, a statistic that was thrown at me was like, um, within the, the African-American community, because we're talking about race and religion today, right? Like 50% yeah. of the fatherless homes involve African-Americans and then Hispanics, 31% and then Caucasians, white, 20%. And so the dialogue is, you know, saying, oh, you know, the, the problem with black America is fatherlessness. So be a better father. Right. And it's like, nice, nice, nice. that, <laughs> okay, maybe, yes, that's a problem, but the solution is just not personal ethics. I think. I think when we ascribe a, someone's problem as totally the result of their personal decision and personal choice, we fail to account for societal contributions and inequalities that also contribute to the picture. We, we, um, like we're talking about oversimplify the problem. And so while I can understand like, yes, fatherlessness contributes, but we also have to factor in the drug war and the amount of incarcerated Fathers out there who, who, like we said in statistics, also lead to more levels of fatherlessness. And like, let's say, you know, a person who grew up fatherless because her, his dad or his dad was in prison is more likely to commit a crime. And then if he has a kid and he goes to jail, you know, like the cycle continues 
right? Yeah. And so when we think about poverty, I, I think, I think like uh, Brian, you said this so well, that the argument of pull yourself up by the bootstraps when some people don't have boots and some people don't have feet, right? As if to say all of us start from the same place in life yeah. and because you're not, you know, where I am, it's because you didn't work as hard as I am. It, 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 it puts us on this platform, I think, you know, where we, 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 we think we're better than them because we worked harder. And so I think the Christian posture is, is recognizing that, first of all, all of us are equal in the eyes of God. And second, in that case, let's not simplify this as to say, this is just a personal choice thing. Let, let us ask ourselves, how, like, what are the reasons that you got here? Um, Sean, I'm sure you can say more about this in regards to like the American dream and stuff. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the whole idea of oversimplifying the problem is, is, is something that yesterday, actually, I was listening to a, um, a great uh, pastor and thinker, uh, Paul Vanderclay, and he's talking about this idea of, um, you know, high resolution and low resolution pictures of what the world is. Right. And he's actually doing a talk directly related to racism. And he's saying that, you know, when we, when we look at people, I mean, whether it's racism or poverty, it's, it's the, these people over there or that problem over there, or right. I don't have this problem. Right. If you, if you have that mindset and you look at life, with this really low resolution picture, um, which, which is unable to really delineate the difference between seeing someone who's in poverty and associating them with a certain, you know, race. Right. And so I think that's many, many times what happens. You have communities of people who they don't know people of other races and classes. They're not friends with them, you know, Maybe the, the only exposure that a white person has to a black person is what they saw on cops. Well, that's a really mm-hmm. low resolution picture. And, and, and what someone sees that, they oversimplify what they see and say, oh, okay, this problem is related to this aspect of a characterization of a person on the outside, right? And so what he implores us to do is in order to create high resolution pictures of our world, we must get to know people. We must, you know, put ourselves out there and, 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 and make sure that we are becoming people who not only know these issues from like some theoretical statistical level, but at a personal level. And what he appeals to is his church. He says that, you know, he grew up in a space where there was a lot of African-Americans, a lot of Asians, a lot of Caucasians. And because he grew up in that environment, he had a really high resolution picture of the character of people. And when he had a negative experience with someone from a different race, he didn't associate that negative experience with that race, right? Again, oversimplifying the problem. But because he had those experiences, he was able to to take out the different nuances that made a person who they are and, and not rely on those to create these huge pictures and these oversimplifications of what a class of people are and, and what, you know, and what the issues they deal with. Um, I, I think a good example for me personally that 
you know, made my experience more high resolution in this idea of poverty and um, really removed my insensitivity to this issue is when I started seeing patients as a clinician, right? Um, I, I think I shared a story about a, a patient who was in an HIV AIDS clinic on, on the last podcast. Um, but I think the overall theme here is that, you know, e- even clinicians today, they, you know, you hear them and they say, well, patients don't show up for their appointments. They don't take their medications, right? Um, they don't, they don't comply with my instructions, right? Well, many mm-hmm. of these, um, that, that problem is oversimplified, right? You've oversimplified the problem to a decision. Hey, this person decided not to obey me or decided not to take their medications. Don't they know that these medications help, you know, impact their health, positively impact their health? I've been telling them about all the studies. I've been telling them about all the the evidence, right? But the reality is the problem isn't just information. There are things warring against people making good decisions, right? And and so one, one of the one of the great things I also experienced through through seeing patients is what they call poverty simulation is they actually put you in a, in a simulation where say you are one person is the banker, one person is the grocer and the, and then eventually there's a patient and they give them money. And they say, this is your money for the week. You have to make, and this is the time that you have, you have to make decisions on what appointment you're going to go to. You're going to go to your kid's appointment for the doctor. You're going to go to your appointment. You can only choose one. What are you going to do? Right. And many times, People don't feel comfortable enough to share that with their doctor because that, or, or, you know, that's just in healthcare, that's an example, share that with their doctor. And so because of this oversimplification of the physician or the clinician on the patient, um, it, it causes a whole break in relationship where the two never actually understand each other and never understand where they're coming from. And I think it's a direct result of oversimplifying the problem that we really have to avoid. And I think the more experiences we get with people that don't look like us, the people that don't come from the same background as us, people from different socioeconomic classes than us, we can really start to have a more clear picture of what the real world is really like. Uh, can I chime in from like a religious perspective, Sean, when you said uh, the, the resolution thing and you were saying, oh, that's their problem, that's not my problem, right? I mean, that's directly in contrast to the character of God, because technically the sin problem was our problem. Yep. It wasn't his problem. So he didn't have to, he didn't have to do anything. He could have just wiped us out if he wanted to, he could just clean slate. Right. But he chose to make it his problem. And therefore we have a responsibility as Christians to make other problems, our problem. And then while I was thinking about this, you know, I think with the internet comes a blessing and a curse. The blessing is that we're able to see problems that probably weren't seen before. The curse is that we see so many problems that it becomes overwhelming. Where do we start? Because there's like a gazillion problems in front of us and I only have 24 hours in a day and seven days of the week. And so at least for me, my journey is okay. Right now, I'm gonna spend time understanding this area, especially with racial injustice and social injustice. Uh, and, And I'm gonna... I'm not going to overwhelm my po- myself to the point where I just get so overwhelmed with the darkness that I don't know where to go from here, right? But mm-hmm. at the same time, there's this balance, right? There's this balance between like not even caring and like taking so much time to care that you just forget about yourself too. So um, other 
other people's problems are our problems. And I think, you know, which problems do we choose? I think that's, that's also something that the Holy Spirit has to lead each of us on because, um, you know, Brian can reach different people and solve different things much better than I can in some areas. And same thing as Sean. So, uh, but, but just at the bottom line is that we can't just discount other people's problems and relegate them to their personal choice and their decisions to get them out of that area of their life. Yeah. And, and the scriptures are, you know, they, they really highlight this, you know, this last comment you mentioned, you know, it's, it's um, the Proverbs, especially really um, highlight these aspects of a person's well-being, right? The pie that Brian is talking about, um, the good life pie, right? Um, the good life pie is, is, is not just a function of decisions, but many times a function of, um, you know, the current situation people are in. So there's, you know, Proverbs 10, 15, you know, talks about the poverty of the poor is their destruction. So, you know, many people would say the opposite, right? That the poor are in poverty because of their, um, or excuse me, the, the, the poor, because they're destructive, um, they're placed in poverty, right? Hey, you know, and, and I think some of us were raised that way, right? We see uh, someone that's stealing and we say, well, that's why they're in poverty. And what the Bible is saying is, no, they're, they're, they're stealing because they're in poverty, right? And so it kind of flips everything on its head and, again, makes the, the problem more complex, right, than just saying a person's choices determine their outcome, right? Mm-hmm. And then even more complex than that, which is everything we're discussing in terms of systemic injustice, is Proverbs 13, 23, that talks about how you know, a poor man's field has abundance, it has fruit, it has grain, but injustice sweeps it away. <clears throat> so injustice, obviously, is this overarching comment, commentary that we've been discussing last episode, right? All of those different factors come into play and they actually take away what good work a poor man can do. Hmm. And so, again, this issue of poverty is something that we cannot stress enough. It's very complex and we must consider all of the factors in order to um, address the problem. It's definitely a difficult conversation because a lot of us are open to and trying to be honest about how we can participate in being more knowledgeable about these issues and being better Christians, right? Actually fulfilling what Christ in the final judgment will be asking, you know, when you saw me hungry, when you saw me thirsty, when you saw me naked, mm-hmm. when you saw me in prison, mm-hmm. what did you do? And like Gerald said, it's this blessing and it's this curse because we see more people hungry and thirsty. We see more people mm-hmm. in bad situations, you know. And, and I think that what, what we have the opportunity to do is to, to really appreciate the realities of this Christian gospel. And especially in verses like 2 Corinthians 8 verses 9, recognizing that the God of the universe in the person of Christ Jesus was rich and became poor so that we who are poor can become rich. And the implications of that 
text or that we have to recognize our poverty. Uh, I think that the, the core issue is that many of these elements, race and religion and color and class, they become the ways that we identify ourselves and we believe ourselves to be something outside of who Christ is. It's, <clears throat> it's the issue of the rich young ruler, right? And then for reason of much of his wealth, he was unable to participate in loving people. And what we have an opportunity to do as we're seeing so much darkness is asking the Lord, who is the light of the world, to give us opportunities to see, right? Because we don't see the light, but it is by the light that we see all things. Um, to see, Lord, where can I be able to bear the burdens of my brothers and sisters? Uh, how can I avoid the bias that I have in my heart to look down on people who are in a different class or scoff at people who are of a different color because I don't have a high resolution picture and I want to be able to see them the way that you do. You know, that, that becomes the great prayer. And um, all, all throughout the scriptures, we see that the individuals who are walking closest with God care about the plight of people. Uh, one of our, our favorite individuals, and we don't have time today to go into it, is, is Job. Um, who, you know, the Lord asks even Satan to consider him. You know, he, he is a man who lives a standard on his faith journey that we should aspire to. And he, he utilized his resources uh, in the courts and in the fields and in his relationships, um, even with young women, to make sure that he's hoping, uh, he's living up to the, the hope that he has in a God who has expended so much for him so that his identity rests not in what he has or what he's done, uh, but who he is in his Redeemer. And so I, I think that what, what we've been able to do on this conversation is really just lay out the fact that these things are, are much more complicated than we may at first appreciate. And what we have as Christians is an opportunity to spend time. And, and as, as it's already been said, and, and I want to say it also because I, I care about um, the well-being of, of our our, our brothers and sisters on this journey is, is just be careful that you don't overwhelm yourself because um, <laughs> interestingly enough, and I wish I could spend time on this as well. There's this pride problem, which is at the core of, of all of these things, right? All of these external sins are definitely bad, but be careful that you don't become puffed up when you become more knowledgeable about these things and look down on the racist or on right. the classist or on, any of the individuals who are still struggling on their journey to becoming more like Christ. And so I think that the, the core concern within doing justice and loving mercy is actually that we walk humbly with our God and we walk humbly with one another. We, we learn to listen. Uh, we learn to love and we learn to let God reveal to us the things along the journey that we need in order to be more like him. Yeah, I want to add to that. I mean, the word thrown around in culture right now is woke, right? So are you broke yeah. or not? And that's that's my, I guess, my pushback in terms when I hear that word. Like, just because you're quote unquote woke doesn't mean you're better than someone else that isn't. And um, it's the humility of understanding that just because you have more knowledge doesn't mean you're intrinsically more wor worthy in the eyes of God or whatever. Like, our worth is equal across the board, no matter how horrible of a human being you are. 
Um, and Brian, I, I kind of want to close this time. It's kind of a pivot, but kind of overarches, you know, this whole conversation. So, you know, in light of recent of events, right? Like the movement Black Lives Matter has just really been a chanting point um, for many protesters out there. And, and, and some people don't understand exactly what is that all about? Like, is it, yeah, like, like what exactly is this movement supposed to signify? And so you, you know, identifying as a Black American, I guess, mm-hmm. what would you like to say to those of you, those people that are asking, you know, what, what is this all about? Like, what are you trying, what are you hoping for other Americans to understand about Black Americans? You see, the truth is that when it comes down to class and color, everything that we've been discussing about these gaps that exist because of socioeconomic class have been affecting people of color. The truth of this Black Lives Matter moment is that all of these disparities are communicating to black and brown communities and and black communities in particular that they don't matter enough to be given the resources to bridge those things that have been caused by a history of violence and discrimination and systemic racism. Black lives matter enough to, to bridge these gaps that are removing fathers from the communities, to bridge these gaps that are kicking people out of their, their homes. But Black lives matter enough to to address these, these problems that people are adopting that were not their own and that in many ways are a result of the simple fact that they're Black. Um, and I think that it's, it's, <clears throat> it's meaningful to appreciate that, especially as Christians who uh, are struggling with this, the cry Black Lives Matter is the cry of a group of people who are hurting. And what is it that as fellow fellow Americans we can do? It's not maybe ultimately all that will be done, but the least we can do is listen. Yeah, you put that really well, Brian. I think, uh, at least for me, I've recognized that I need to learn and listen. And there's so much more that I don't understand. And so I thank you and Sean for be willing to have these conversations with me because I'm just sitting here learning, you know, I'm chiming in with my own thoughts, but at the same time, um, I, I, I recognize I have so much to learn and I want to encourage anyone that's listening, you know, uh, wherever you are to, to continue to be willing to learn and recognize that you don't have the full picture and probably if I may say this, you probably never will, but our, our goal is to continue to understand the picture and recognize there's still more aspects that we don't understand. Right. And, and for the areas that maybe you have more clarity on and maybe you have a heart calling on address it. Right. So like how Brian and Sean have started a nonprofit clinic. That's, that's how God has, has called them to serve their immediate community. Um, I think, what I hope Christians can do, um, as we talked about earlier, let's let not our churches just be a place for us 
to gather as a country club and pat ourselves on the back and tell ourselves that God is good and saved us from our sins and go home. I hope that our church should be the cornerstone of light and hope to this broken world. And each one of us does our part to be a part of mending the brokenness and shooing away the darkness in our society. So um, I guess, yeah, any last words you guys like to say before we end our time together? So thank you, Gerald, for those words. You know, your, your comments about the church remind me of um, Tim Keller's words who said that, you know, if your church, the, the litmus test for um, a successful church is that if your church ceased to exist tomorrow, would the community cry out for, the, for its loss? You know, does, does your church is it so integrated into the community that we are solving all of these, we're helping to solve all these, all these issues. We are bridging the gaps as Christ bridged the gap for us, exemplifying the love of Christ into the community, not just for ourselves. And so I think for most churches, the answer would be no, we're not doing that. <laughs> if we failed to exist, I don't know if the community would, 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 uh, actually lose much. Um, right. but I think that means it's a greater, it's a high calling that we have and the calling isn't to be perfect, right? Because that in a sense, uh, would be a great feat to be able to accomplish. But, um, as you're mentioning, the greater that we can serve our communities, the more lives that can find themselves rooted in the, in the identity of Christ mm -hmm. and could find healing. And for every person that does that, they can go out into their own, into their communities with their families and love and provide healing for others and share the love of Christ that through another human being helped them to heal. And I think that is why Christ called us as human beings to deliver the gospel message more so than angels or, you know, the Holy spirit, right? We are the, the vehicles by which the gospel is spread throughout all the earth. There's a lot of pain in the world. And, um, if you're hurting, like, like many of us are, because we're all facing problems, not just the issues of race. It's also the issues of domestic violence, the issues that are happening, not only in the black communities, but also the Native American communities, the Latin American communities, even in white communities. The problem, the problem of sin um, is our problem, but God has made it his. And um, I just want to encourage you, um, if you haven't spent time drinking from the well that never runs dry and you're feeling so overwhelmed with either guilt or with guile or oh, just everything that's happening in the world that you just ask God to to fill you with his love and with his with his care and um, and and my prayer for everyone who's been journeying with us and is continuing on is that you you have friends 
because I think the most difficult thing for any of us in this journey is to be journeying alone. Yeah. And so I'll be praying for you and I'll be asking God to give you people who can bear your burdens alongside you because truly uh, the great gift of God is that he has intertwined himself with humanity and in redeeming us to himself, he is also redeeming our relationships with one another. And we need that. And so uh, I just pray that, that the Lord would be able to grant you good friends as you journey on this experience and that you recognize that these issues we're addressing are the very things that stand in the way of good friendships and great communities. So may God bless us all as we're trying to figure things out because I know for me, I'm hurting and um, I'm grateful for my friends here who are journeying alongside with me. Brian and Sean, again, thanks so much for having these conversations and hey, for, yeah, for those of you who are listening, I hope you know that these conversations can help you on your faith journey as you continue to process what's going on in the world. Um, next week, um, we're going to um, dive into some of the term is psychosocial pillars. Um, and I think really understanding behind the mentality of such things like, for example, hot topic, white privilege or, or insensitivity or Christian privilege or like color blindness. Um, so, um, yeah, I really hope that, uh, the conversation that we put forward next can really help you. So stay tuned as, uh, we release that episode next week. Um, as always, remember the words of the great Beth Moore. To God, our journey is just as important as our destination. God bless and see you next time.